From the JAMA Network, this is the JAMA Medical News Podcast, discussing timely topics in clinical medicine, biomedical sciences, public health, and health policy, featured in the medical news section of JAMA. I was 14 years old, and I started losing weight. And as it progressed, I noticed that I was drinking more water and getting up and using the restroom throughout the night. We bought gallons of spring water at the store, and uh, my dad kind of had a cow one morning because the two gallons we had just bought were gone. I drank two gallons of water throughout one night. And I remember specifically, it was the last day of school, my freshman year in high school. So our art teacher brought donuts, and I ate three donuts. By second period in geometry, I uh, couldn't see the blackboard. I was sitting in the front row, and it was just blurry. I went to see my pediatrician, and we tested my blood with just a simple glucometer, just a pinprick on the finger, and uh, she had a look of terror on her face. said, you need to go to the hospital right now. Jared Van Camp has been living with type 1 diabetes for 27 years. The condition used to be called juvenile diabetes. And, like Jared, most people develop it when they're young. In the U.S., around 18,000 people under 20 years old are diagnosed every year. For a long time, years, Jared says he didn't carefully manage his condition. He was in denial, and like most young people, he thought he was invincible. But then, in his 30s, it caught up with him. He almost went blind because he so often let his blood sugar run high. That was a wake-up call. I started noticing that I was having trouble reading the guide on the TV. And I thought, oh, I haven't had my prescription updated for my eyes in a while. I probably just need to do that. I went to the optometrist to get it updated. And she took a look into my eyes and had sort of that uh, same look of terror on her face that Dr. Koo did when I was a freshman in high school and told me to immediately go across town to see a retinologist. And I had some bleeding in the back of both of my eyes near my optic nerve. Was immediately diagnosed with diabetic retinopathy. That was the real shakeup that changed my life. I'm Jennifer Abbasi for JAMA Medical News. Today we're discussing some exciting new research that could change the course of type 1 diabetes. We're also going to talk about the realities of living with the autoimmune condition, which affects about 1.25 million Americans. It's a topic that's particularly important to me because Jared is my partner. Through him, I've learned a lot about the disease. Every day brings a series of calculations designed to strike a fine balance. Inject just enough insulin to prevent sky-high blood sugar, without tipping the scales enough to cause dangerous low blood sugar. So how does diabetes affect your daily life? Even little things like a snack or something like that, there's a consequence to it. You have to plan for it. You can't just say, oh, I'm going to have this. You have to think about, well, I will need insulin with this. How much insulin do I need? You have to count the carbohydrates, count the insulin with your sliding scale. There are so many factors that can influence that. It's not just a simple calculation. Yeah, it's how much glucagon you have in your body, which 
you're never going to be able to know. Maybe you exercised that day. Maybe you didn't. Those are factors. What's your stress level? You get better at it. You can sort of guess based on experience, but it's never exact. Blood sugar low versus blood sugar high is equally debilitating, but in very different ways. When it's high, you're very sluggish. You don't want to really do anything but sit or lay. It really just, it's a wallop. You're just exhausted and you don't really want to do anything. Obviously, the symptoms of dry mouth, drinking a lot of water, things like that, going to the restroom, that's more of a extended if your, your blood sugar is high for a longer period of time and very high, but it can happen, yeah. And how do the lows affect you? They can be quite uh, scary and debilitating. Many instances I've had throughout 26 years, 27 years of it, where I'm not really aware of what's going on. The people that I'm closest to in my life have plenty of stories they can all share, and it can be quite scary, quite taxing for other people in your life. I've been hospitalized due to uh, severe low blood sugar reactions. Thankfully not since I've had the CGM. That's been probably the, the greatest thing of all. I've been hospitalized three times, different instances, all different circumstances, but not since having the CGM. The CGM Jared's talking about is his continuous glucose monitor, a small sensor inserted under his skin. When his blood sugar is too low, it alerts him and me or anyone else he chooses to share the alerts with. We use a phone app. It's great. But when he doesn't have the CGM in, he's more likely to have a severe low, especially when he's sleeping. When that happens, it's really scary. He sweats through his clothes and the sheets. His thoughts and speech are muddled. He twitches and then he convulses. I help him drink a soda or, if necessary, give him a glucagon shot to raise his blood sugar. Low blood sugar can be scary when it happens, but high blood sugar is a longer-term fear. As you heard, the repercussions of chronic hyperglycemia include diabetic retinopathy. Jared's vision is much improved today, by the way, thanks to some medical interventions and excellent control of his blood sugar. I do sometimes have to read him subtitles when we're watching TV. Poor blood sugar control can affect the heart, blood vessels, nerves, and kidneys, causing serious complications. Jared said he's particularly afraid of having an amputation. Scientists are searching for ways to sort of freeze type 1 diabetes in place in people who've recently developed it. They also want to prevent it before it happens. But type 1 diabetes, unlike the more common type 2, is an autoimmune disease. It doesn't appear to be affected by things that people can change, like what they eat or how active they are. Still, there's new hope. In a recent phase 2 trial, a two-week intravenous course of an investigational drug called teplizumab delayed progression to type 1 diabetes in people who were at high risk of developing the disease. The study's 76 participants all had the condition in their family, which increases their risk about 15-fold. To join the trial, they also had to have at least two diabetes-related autoantibodies in their blood and abnormal results on a glucose tolerance test, indicators that they were on the cusp of the disease. Based on the predetermined study design, researchers ended the trial once 42 participants developed diabetes. 
At that point, 57% of those treated with teplizumab still didn't have the disease, while the same was true for only 28% of those who got a placebo. The study was led by Dr. Kevin Harold, professor of immunobiology and internal medicine at Yale. Now, it could be that the individuals in the teplizumab-treated group would develop diabetes the day after the study ended, or it could be that they will never develop diabetes. We don't know the answer to that question, and we're still very keen to follow them to find out what will happen. Even if the drug doesn't provide lifelong protection, the study demonstrated a two-year median delay in the diagnosis. In other words, it could buy people some extra time. Here's how it works. Teplizumab is an anti-CD3 monoclonal antibody. It binds to CD3, a molecule that's found on all T lymphocytes, which are T cells that are responsible for a whole variety of immune functions, like sniffing out tumors and responding to viruses and bacteria. These cells are also involved in the pathogenesis of autoimmune diseases, like multiple sclerosis and type 1 diabetes. And for that reason, this molecule, CD3, has been in the spotlight as a target of immune therapies like teplizumab. The thinking is that the drug delivers a signal that renders the autoreactive immune cells exhausted. By doing so, it may be able to turn off the development of type 1 diabetes. So in your study, the median time to the diagnosis of type 1 diabetes was around 48 months in the teplizumab group compared with around 24 months in the placebo group. So the treatment delayed the disease. Yes. How significant is this finding? I think from a statistical point of view, it's a very statistically significant finding. Um, but I think the more important question is, what does this mean for people? Now, I've spoken to a lot of the families who've been involved in this trial. I've spoken to many of my patients with type 1 diabetes, and I think everyone would agree that two years without diabetes is a gift. Type 1 diabetes is a disease that's with you literally 24-7. There is not a single activity that someone with type 1 diabetes does that in some way isn't affected by the disease. So to not have the disease for two years is actually a very important thing. You know, most of the people in the trial were children. 75% of them were children. The median ages were 13 or 14. If you're a child about to go into middle school, and now all of a sudden you don't have diabetes until you're out of middle school, or if you're right about to go into high school, and now you don't have diabetes until you go to college, and the same thing for college, that's huge. Delaying the time has important benefits in terms of emotional and social development. And are there benefits in terms of long-term health outcomes to reducing the amount of time a person has type 1 diabetes over their lifetime? There have been a couple of very, unfortunately, interesting papers that have looked at the long-term prognosis of individuals who are diagnosed with diabetes as children, and there still is a significant loss of life. Largely now it's from vascular disease, but nonetheless for children who develop diabetes, depending on which paper you read, there can be results of uh, loss of 14 or even longer years of life. Do you suspect that there could be long-term health benefits to delaying for even a year or two? The answer is yes in general, I think so. I think that any time without diabetes is gonna have some benefits. 
If you're an adolescent with type 1 diabetes, and I'm talking about the current data, the hemoglobin A1Cs on average are awful. They can be above 9%. To not have diabetes during that period of time, I have a hard time believing it can have some long-term benefits. Is there ongoing follow-up of the participants in this study? Absolutely. We are very interested in following them for a number of reasons. Obviously, we're interested in finding out will they ever develop diabetes and if they do, when. But we're also interested in knowing whether or not, even in those who did develop diabetes, is their diabetes improved in terms of their retention of the ability to make insulin? Is that improved even though they may now have hyperglycemia and need to take insulin? The interesting parallel, of course, is that these drugs have been used in people with diabetes that have shown some initial benefit. And the question is, if we treat people before they have diabetes, will that benefit carry over even to the time period after they develop disease, if they do develop disease? To your point, teplizumab is also being studied as a treatment for type 1 diabetes. But in 2011, the drug failed to meet the primary outcome in a phase three study of people with recently diagnosed disease, which I believe was a composite of insulin use and HbA1c. So are you still hopeful that this or other new drugs could help improve treatments for people who are already living with the disease? I'm very hopeful and I'm quite aware of the outcome of that trial. It was unfortunate that the composite endpoint was used because that trial still showed improvement in retention of beta cell function, even though it didn't meet the composite endpoint. And what does that mean? When most people present with type 1 diabetes, they still make significant, clinically significant amounts of their own insulin, which, of course, we measure by looking at C-peptide, a byproduct of endogenous insulin production. So when immune therapies have worked, they preserve the ability to make insulin. For those of us who are endocrinologists, we view that as a success because we know that beta cells are always better at controlling diabetes than devices and exogenous insulin. Beta cells are in the right place. They're in the pancreas. They release their insulin, goes to the liver. They don't release too much. They turn it off when you don't need it. It's a perfect system in a sense. And so to preserve that system, the ability of your own beta cells to make insulin is an important endpoint. Now, the problem, of course, is that on a day-to-day life basis, you don't think about C-peptide. You think about blood sugar. You think about hypoglycemia, low blood sugars. You think about insulin usage and everything. So in order to translate that retention of C-peptide into some clinically meaningful benefit, things like that composite endpoint were put together and other endpoints are being considered. But nonetheless, preserving beta cell function is still a very important thing. Now, could these drugs or other drugs be used in people without new onset diabetes, so people who have been living with the disease for some time? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And I have a feeling it's very complicated for a number of reasons. One is the point that I alluded to already as to whether there is some sort of an immunologic window when you are best able to modulate immune responses. The markers of that time period are still somewhat unknown, but it may be that there actually is a window of treatment opportunity in the peridiagnosis period, just before, just after disease onset. Having said that, there is a lot of interest in individuals who've had long-standing diabetes who still may have residual beta cells. 
When I was in medical school, we were pretty much taught that when individuals have type 1 diabetes, they kill all of their beta cells and there's nothing left. And indeed, if you have C-peptide, the byproduct of your own insulin production measured in most clinical labs, it will be pretty much undetectable in most people who have longstanding type 1 diabetes. However, with more sensitive assays and larger studies, it appears that there are many individuals, even with longstanding diabetes, who still have some residual beta cell function. So, of course, the question is, if you're able to stop the autoimmune response that we think is responsible for killing beta cells, is it possible to recover some of those cells? And it's a bit of a dream at this point, but nonetheless, I think there is a lot of progress being made in understanding the biology of beta cell changes in response to autoimmunity, and perhaps even in the future, identifying ways that they might be recovered. The other option, of course, is to replace them, and that potentially could be done with stem cells that are developed from an individual that could be made into beta cells, or even they don't necessarily have to be personalized stem cells, but some sort of a replacement cell that could be either engineered to resist immune attack or given together with an agent such as teplizumab. So there is some hope. Absolutely. In the United States, having a chronic disease often means having to worry about money, even for people who have insurance, like Jared. So as far as costs go, I pay $600 is just for the insurance, just the base coverage. And then per month, just for several types of insulin, the continuous glucose monitor, the like alcohol swabs, things like that, my costs are right around $1,200 per month out of pocket. It's $150 to see the doctor now, just to, for an office visit. Those things aren't something I can go without. So it's just built into my costs per month. My fear is that there is going to come a time when there's a magic cure and that I won't be able to have access to it or afford it. I asked Dr. Harold what he thinks about the costs. The costs to me are unacceptable. I mean, they're absolutely unacceptable. And I have to say that, you know, having lived in Europe for a period of time where insulin was completely covered and the costs of insulin there are considerably less than they are in this country, I just think it's wrong. This is a drug that's needed for life, for survival. The original name of this disease was insulin-dependent diabetes because without insulin, you die. And I don't think that we should be gouging individuals who have the disease for the high cost, and I don't see where they're necessary. These are drugs, for the most part, that have been around for many, many years. And it would be one thing if there was an extraordinary research program to try to replace insulin or develop new insulins or something. But to be honest, I haven't seen it. And I think that we are looking at a number of individuals who are taking advantage of the system in order to make profits, quite frankly. And it's unfair for people who have diabetes. And what does that look like for your patients? At a minimum, what it looks like is that insurers end up deciding what insulin a person can take. And there's a whole lot of restrictions on how you prescribe insulin and so on and so forth. Of course, my patients can't go without insulin. Somehow or another, they must get insulin. 
So, you know, we figure out ways to make sure they get it. But I have colleagues here who have looked into this field very closely and are aware about people missing doses. I've had patients who, because of costs, have skimped on insulin dosing, which I think is wrong. It truly is something that has to be fixed. Let's shift gears a little bit. Type 1 diabetes is on the rise here in the U.S. and around the world. Do you have suspicions as to why? Even in the latest data that was put together in the Type 1 Diabetes in America report, the rates after adjustments increasing about 1.8%. And I remember when I was in medical school, the incidence was about 12 or so per 100,000. Now it's up to like 21.7 per 100,000. I think many of us have been thinking that this is related to changes in the environment because it is, it's becoming fairly clear that environmental factors can affect the progression to type 1 diabetes. There's been speculation that cleaning the environment, the more frequent use of antibiotics, and so on may result in failures to develop tolerance, immunologic tolerance, that may ultimately lead to type 1 diabetes and other immune-related diseases. So how far are we from a cure for type 1 diabetes, and what do you think that could look like? In terms of what could be done for people who already have the disease, I think that a lot of the cellular replacement technologies are starting to become very exciting. There has been one trial already that was somewhat disappointing, but nonetheless, new technologies that are coming down the pike that I think are very, very exciting. So I think that potentially is another pathway to a cure. The other thing is that if we sort of think about what a cure would really mean, it could potentially mean that if you present with diabetes, you might be given some immune therapy initially, which would stabilize things. And then if we had a good way of following the disease, a biomarker, that you might periodically, and I don't mean continuously, but periodically come in perhaps with a different agent or even the same agent over some period of time in order to maintain beta cell function. As we've covered already, having your own beta cell function and your own ability to make insulin is always better than relying on exogenous insulin. So I think that if you could maintain what has been called in the vernacular the honeymoon forever, that would be quite an accomplishment in coming close to sort of the real cure idea. There was a um, colleague of mine that I worked with when I was in New York who knew the work I was doing, and we used to joke about what a cure would be like. And he said that, well, you know, I know exactly what I would do if there was a cure. I would just go into a park and I'd sit on the bench and I would do nothing. I would do absolutely nothing. And I think that's kind of the way that many people with diabetes would look at this. If I could just be free of all that I have to do for the disease, that would be tantamount to a cure. And I would include that obviously the technologies are getting us to that point, but I think that this is all within sight now. The study that was led by Dr. Harold was conducted by TrialNet, a research consortium funded by the National Institutes of Health the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation, and the American Diabetes Association, among others. TrialNet screens and monitors relatives of people with type 1 diabetes free of charge. 
If you or someone you know is interested, you can visit trialnet.org. That's it for this episode of JAMA Medical News. To listen to more podcasts and subscribe, go to jamanetworkaudio.com. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode was produced by Jesse McWhorters. I'm Jennifer Obasi, Senior Staff Writer for JAMA Medical News. Thanks for listening.